90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? It's April in academia world, you know. <laughs> yeah, so not good. No, not good at all. Um, yeah, just trying to graduate three students and sit on 20,000 committees. So I've been reading theses a lot. Well, and you had to do it by candlelight last week, which is why we didn't have a show because you had no power. Gosh, man. You always make fun of my internet, but really the power grid out here is what's the worst. (laughs) Yeah, right before we were going to uh, try to record, I just got a photo from Shannon (laughs) in a text message that was a bunch of electric trucks and broken power poles. Uh, I don't even know what happened. And I just said, all right, whatever. And we went out and had pizza. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we're used to it here. But yeah, sorry, everybody. (laughs) I live in the in the boonies. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So what's up with you? Oh, you know, trying to still trying to make it through the move. But I was actually really interested this last week and had to go do some data wrangling because very relevant to our show topics there was a meteorite entry and detonation over northeast oklahoma and northwest arkansas last week are you kidding me my whole family lives there nothing they didn't tell me about this at all yeah so my parents actually told me they heard and even like felt the pressure wave from it (gasps) oh my gosh (laughs) how did i know i'm so upset right now (laughs) did they find the guy or no no, so the cool thing is it showed up on the Global Lightning Mapper, the GLM instrument, since it's a bright flash, mm-hmm. on both goes east and goes west, which lets them triangulate the approximate entry trajectory and entry point. Nice. So they had it something like a 40-odd degree entry, which is pretty steep. Yes. Uh, over the Westville, Oklahoma area when it was about 18 miles up. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. What time? And, well, I guess you said bright flash. I mean, was it nighttime? No, no. So, I mean, the instrument can see lightning and flashes in the daytime. It was about 5.30 Of course it can. PM. What is wrong with me? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It's real late at night. <laughs> so, no, it was, it was uh, just sort of as people were getting off work. And there is a, a meteorologist in the area pointed out that there are two little signatures on uh, the Hobbs seismometer, which is in northwest Arkansas. Mm-hmm. And Steve Piltz of the Tulsa National Weather Service office on his own personal infrasound instrument uh, <laughs> saw a pressure pulse from it, or that we think was from it. That's awesome. Uh, the signals on the instrument, I-, I went through and pulled some other stations, did some filtering. I found it on two stations. I'm not sure what's going on there. Uh, I can't verify that it was from the meteor because the timing isn't quite right. Mm-hmm. But the, so there are two arrivals and I thought, well, one of these is through the ground. One of them is through the air. Uh, that math doesn't work either. <laughs> hmm. And they're not PNS. They're not from an event because it only showed up on two stations very close to the track. Right. Nothing else. I couldn't find it on any other stations. Uh, I have absolutely no idea what they are. <laughs> That's crazy. I need to go back and rework because I, I am not taking into account that this happened above ground. I'm assuming a planar 
mm-hmm. arrival. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I need to go back and do that and maybe add some, uh, the fact that the sound is going to refract in the air due to temperature differences. Mm-hmm. Luckily, there is a sounding relatively close to them, so I can probably get the rough profile. Oh, nice. E- either way, it's an interesting problem, but unfortunately one that I don't have tons of time to work on right now. Yeah. Man, that's really cool. See, I already spent all this time texting my parents and saying, did you see this? Why didn't you tell me about this? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's cool. So this can strike anywhere, and if you really want to figure it out, you can put your seismometers away and get out your microscope. <laughs> well, that's assuming something hits, which we're pretty sure if anything did, it was teeny tiny pieces uh, in this case. <laughs> but when you have a big impact... Yeah, to verify that what you're looking at is an ancient uh, crater, microscopic evidence is really the diagnostic thing. Megascopic and macroscopic can lie. Microscopic can't with an asterisk. (laughs) Yes, we'll get to that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so exactly. Uh, For those of you that, you know, might have missed the last couple of weeks, we talked about from the large-scale supposed impact crater... You can hear my quotes in my voice. Um, <laughs> supposed MCAT crater diagnostic features, like you've got a circle. <laughs> All the rivers run into the circle, maybe. You've got radial faults, or you've got some rocks that look like they've been broken up in place. Brushes. Uh, you got some fault-looking things, and maybe your faults are radial as well. And they got these shatter cones, which that one's getting fairly diagnostic, but that one's also getting fairly small even though it's it's on the macroscopic scale but shatter cones can be pretty tiny and now the real deal the microscopic evidence right so (laughs) when you start pulling out a microscope and taking thin sections of rock and looking at them through something called a petrographic microscope you can do all kinds of fun things and they're fun things that geophysicists try to forget about Uh, (laughs) i love it we force you guys to actually touch rocks (laughs) these microscopes are really cool actually uh, because they've got all kinds of different filters and polarizers on them and you can get some really interesting and diagnostic crystallographic data from these microscopes you can do uh, put in cross polarizers and rotate the stage that your sample is on and measure angles of when all the light becomes extinct and get some very definitive information about your sample. You can use these mica plates and learn about the orientation of the sample. Uh, there's a lot of cool stuff you can do with a simple microscope. I mean, simple, but it still is like, you know, $25,000. <laughs> yeah, they aren't cheap. Uh, no, they're not cheap at all. Um, yeah, I try to block off a lot of mineralogy out of my head, you know, that's the fun thing about being a sedimentologist. There's really only like five minerals you need to know about. <laughs> and there's no orientation information in sedimentology. Exactly. So. <laughs> Zero orientation information. I definitely had to look that stuff up again. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what's cool about some of these impact rocks, and this was true for my master's thesis, impact rocks too, is they have these things called planar deformation features or PDFs. And, and not the documents. Not the documents, <laughs> but they do have to be documented. Oh. <laughs> Ooh, yes. Um, and so these PDFs, like that's one of the first things people ask you. Do you have shatter cones? Do you have PDFs? <laughs> like the, That's the maybe you've got an impact lingo, right? 
Um, and these planar deformation features occur in silicate minerals, so stuff like quartz and feldspar. And if you've heard the term, if you've been around impact people at all, very likely you've heard the term shocked quartz before. And these are very indicative of high pressure events. And they look like a bunch of little lines inside the mineral and they're evenly spaced. Mm -hmm. And if you imagine, or if you've seen, there's this thing called Schlieren photography where you can see movement of the air. Mm -hmm. uh, if you've seen shockwaves or even looked at a model of what shockwaves propagating out from a source looks like, this is exactly what you would expect. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and it's really cool because this is a way that the shockwave is frozen in time. Right. Where you get compressional forces as this wave propagates, you, you get these extreme pressures and you you dissolve the mineral. <laughs> right, yeah. You're essentially making, I mean, quartz and feldspars, you're essentially making glass along those crystal faces in the mineral which is crazy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> As you can imagine, it takes insane amounts of pressure to do this. Yeah, right. Um, you also get, when you're looking at them, and if you're used to looking down a petrographic microscope, um, you're used to these little things too. So those crystal faces are, is, they're not necessarily planes of weakness, but they're, you know, pre-existing planes as the crystal is growing, right? And so that's where you get the amalgamation of that shock effect is along those planes. And often you get fluid inclusions along those lines as well. So there'll be these straight little lines and sometimes they'll have little trails of bubbles that are also perfectly straight. Um, and that just those fluid inclusions form along those lines of weakness as well. So you can get lots of planar things and that being uh, the main term when you talk about these PDFs is what do they look like? What are they shaped like? So we'll talk in a minute about some alternate shapes of those. Right. And so the spacing and the the orientation is not totally representative of the shockwave that passed through. It's controlled largely by the crystallographic nature of what you're looking at. Uh, but you're really looking at sort of an amalgamation of both. Right. And so... <laughs> you get these lines of fluid inclusions frequently. Those aren't really weird at all. Um, and so people see those, and if you have a line of them that's planar enough, people start to interpret and say, hey, maybe all these lines of inclusions are along PDFs. And so this gets into really big nerd-fighting territory <laughs> because people want to make sure that those lines are indexed. And so that's what they say. Did you index your shocked quartz? What does that mean? <laughs> so that means, did you do this little mica plate and rotate the stage trick and see what the orientation of those lines is with respect to the orientation of the crystallographic axes? Right. Because like John said earlier, the once you put in these cross polars and you put in these different filters that are like mica plates and quartz plates and stuff, it changes the color of the mineral you're looking at. And when you're looking down a certain crystallographic face, axes, if you want to think about it in this 3D, it turns a very specific color. 
And so you need to make sure that those planar features are also along those axes. And this seems like it's something that's easy, but it's not because even though these deformation features, these basically exolved planes of glasses that are formed by these really high shock pressures, I mean, it's a rock and a lot of these impacts are really old. So stuff happens to the rock after the impact. And here's where you get into while this is very definitive, it's also still questionable because there are lots of diagenetic events that occur after an impact too. Right, and before we get too far from the measuring the orientation, yes, I just wanna say, so you can get some interesting patterns in the microscope when you're doing this, mm -hmm. uh, like lines that are bent in different ways. And I always had to look up in the table, okay, if they're bent like this, that means I'm looking at the C-axis or I'm looking at such an angle to the c-axis of the crystal uh and it's really hard to do <laughs> even yes. on pretty good samples because you have to get everything lined up go to the highest magnification on your scope where you can't see anything really uh put the polars in put the filter plate in and start rotating the stage and hope that you have everything lined up right mm -hmm. i know with practice folks can get very fast at doing this uh, I never was. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, me neither. <laughs> You've got to have the perfect grain and those things that I just said, the diagenetic alteration. So that's everything that happens to a rock after it becomes a rock, right? And so any diagenetic things that have happened to that rock make finding that tiny little specific crystal face at that super high magnification really difficult. Right. So, and yeah. So after you do that, you might start doing what, as Shannon always points out, we in Western science do, which is giving new names to things. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's so true. So PDFs, I read a lot when I was going through here because I did not remember how to index mineral facies. Um, I know our mineralogy professor doesn't listen to this, so thank goodness. <laughs> or I'm going to hear about it. We'll see. <laughs> But also I found a lot, there are a lot of people who claim they have PDFs, but they're not PDFs, they're wavy deformation features. <laughs> and so they claim that stuff has happened to these minerals after the impact that has caused these planar deformation features to curve and indeed has caused the crystallographic faces to curve. And so I actually read a couple papers about this while I was writing these notes. And I thought that was really interesting because that's something I've definitely seen a lot um, back when I was presenting my master's research, people arguing about whether something was a PDF or not because it wasn't straight anymore. And I don't know where I really come down on this, but, you know, pressure and time can alter rocks a whole lot. So I don't see why not. I don't know. Sounds like a job for an experimentalist. Sure does. <laughs> but yeah, okay, you're right. So he's come up with new names for things. And these names are real good because... Whether everyone knows quartz is SiO2 or not, everyone knows, okay, quartz, great. But this quartz is called coasite or stichovite? Stichovite is one of my favorite geologic words. <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will say that in the notes right now, I'm reading that I wrote according to IMDB, which is not what I meant at all. <laughs> 
I, I wondered <laughs> if you were going the for the mineralogical database, database MINDAT, not the, movie database. Not the <laughs> international movie database. These two minerals, coasite and cistrovite, are high-pressure polymorphs within in-situ lithologies. You don't want to break down those words? <laughs> sure. All right. So, coasite. This is something that we get this polymorph above 2.3 gigapascals in pressure. Mm-hmm. Gigapascals. <laughs> you know, I wrote that out, and I'm like, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, gigapascals. Yes. So <laughs> if, if you want to know what that is in Yankee units, that's <laughs> 333,000 PSI. Yankee units to me is bars. <laughs> which is so funny spoken like a scientist exactly spoken like Uh, an undergrad meteorologist so to give you an idea i mean that's 166 tons per square inch yeah so that can mess up some baby little crystal faces right yeah that's that's quite a bit that's stronger than the the hydraulic press on the hydraulic press channel (laughs) um see nature finds a way to mock all you experimentalists (laughs) Um, so when you find coasite and stichovite, these two minerals are, you know, 98%, this is my wording, indicative of impacts. Um, and we say they're both polymorphs of quartz. So quartz is sitting there, and then you hit it with this 2.3 gigapascals of pressure, right? And that equates to about 700 Celsius as well. So somewhere in that pressure temperature range, you start to mess up the crystallographic structure of the quartz. As you might expect. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so this is this is high-pressure metamorphism, right? Metamorphism is always so weird to me, number one, because we hardly ever talk about it, uh, especially at OU, because we don't have a lot of me- metamorphic rocks in Oklahoma, and also you don't find oil in metamorphic rocks. <laughs> so we don't care about them very much. But this is nuts. So you can apply enough pressure or heat to a rock, period, and rearrange its atoms. <laughs> It's it's alchemy for geology. Yes! <laughs> like, it blows my mind. And every time I teach it an intro, all my students just kind of roll their eyes because I get so enamored with the fact that you can squeeze something so hard, its atoms move around and form a new shape. That's crazy. Though, you started poking fun at experimentalists, and I have to say, <laughs> we have been able to make cosite in the lab. You sure have. Yeah, that is true. And stichovite was made first in the lab before they ever found it in nature. Right. Mm-hmm. So th- both cosite and stichovite were first found in Meteor Crater. Right, which is so interesting to me. I know that a lot of like impact science came out of Meteor Crater. And so if you don't know what we're talking about, um, <laughs> because you can't tell that that's capitalized, Meteor Crater. <laughs> that is the crater in northern Arizona. Some people call it Behringer Crater. Um And it's this little crater. It's only about a kilometer across, but it's perfect. It has all those things we talked about. I mean, it's a simple crater, but it has like an overturned flap. It has coasite. It has stichovite. It has shocked quartz. It has shatter cones. They even have the meteorite, the Canyon Diablo meteorite that came out of it. And so it's just insanely studied. There's no vegetation to get in the way of the rocks. There are Um, drill holes in the bottom with core. That's it. They took drill holes with core. Astronauts trained in it before going to the moon. Um, So it's 
a very well-studied crater, but it's just this tiny little crater. But so much of what we know about impact dynamics comes from that crater. Oh, absolutely. And so uh, cosite is not totally definitive. Uh, you can make it in a couple of ways. One is with a nuclear bomb. Cool. Uh, the other is what's the geologist's answer to every potential geologic problem? Beer? Volcanoes. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so but... uh, volcanoes, you can, uh, well, sort of volcanoes. Sort of volcanoes, yeah, So exactly. you can get ultra-high pressure environments uh, when you're generating things like xenoliths or kimberlites. So sort of volcanoes. Right. Uh, <laughs> so if, if kimberlite sounds familiar, that's where you get diamonds from. Uh, diamonds are metastable at the surface. So if you wear your ring long enough, uh, your diamond's going to disintegrate in thousands In geologic years. time. Don't, yep. don't panic. <laughs> don't panic. Um, but like, how do you get, how do we know, this is probably worthy of a whole show, if not a couple. Like, how do you know what's under the surface, right? Like geophysics, I guess, is sort of the answer. <laughs> that, that is the definition of the field. <laughs> it is. <laughs> but mineralogically, right? You guys have trouble with this. And so there's oh, these yeah. weird things that happen that, just like Sean said, they're sort of volcanoes. Um, they're basically like these high-pressure, high-temperature straws down to the mantle. And it's where you get all these crazy mantle rocks that get shot up really fast to the surface and so you'll hear things like kimberlite pipes because you have a lot of diamonds in the mantle okay because that's a high pressure environment and so you'll get these pipes of this stuff that just kind of shoots up because of whatever weird weakness that allows that pressure to be relieved and you get all these strange xenoliths so these weird rocks that come from the mantle xenolith they don't belong where you find them is what that means and so you can get these high-pressure um, things like coassine stitchified there. But I say 2%. This is the other 2% because there's some other things that happen during this high-pressure metamorphic geologic process that you can see in the rocks. Mostly the fact that it turns quartz into this thing that we call polycrystalline textures. And you won't necessarily see that polycrystalline texture in an impact rock, but this is very easy to see in a petrographic microscope. Right, so you just get lots of little crystal grain boundaries where there was originally one large one. Right, exactly. So it looks like a very enlarged salt and pepper piece or something like that when you're looking at it um, in the microscope. So you get this very large salt and pepper piece that's now coasite or stitchified, and that wouldn't have necessarily happened because that takes pressures over a long period of time to do. And so you wouldn't get that kind of pressure gradient in an impact rock. Well, you would get the pressure gradient. You wouldn't get the Sorry. time factor. Correct. Yeah. 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 The time factor of that pressure gradient. Yeah, exactly right. So and so then, then there's stichovite, which it's even more difficult to make. I seriously had to check to make sure this was right. Yeah, so 10 gigapascals, so about 3.3 million PSI. That's crazy. Uh, not quite, but round numbers, when you get that high. Yeah, what's a gigapascal between friends? Uh, 
Right. And uh, temperatures greater than 1,200 degrees Celsius. That's so real hot. So really hot, really, really high pressure. You have literally the weight of most of the Earth sitting on top of you. Most of the Earth, yeah. This stuff is found like deep, deep in the mantle, like 70 kilometers or something. Right. That's crazy. And so, like and you said, as far as I know, it's not made with nuclear bombs. No, I don't think so. I think cosite's the only thing that they see, um, see there in the nuclear bomb stuff. Which a lot of the nuclear bomb stuff looks exactly like an impact crater. Right? It's actually a really good um, thing to compare the impact process to. Right? But uh, Stishovite, named after Sergei Stishov. <laughs> which I like, and he made the mineral um, in 1961, so it was discovered before it was talked about in Meteor Crater in 1962 um, by Edward Chow and then uh, Eugene Shoemaker, um, which might sound familiar. We named the Shoemaker-Levy Comet after him. Eugene Shoemaker was a geologist. that He and his wife both did a ton of work on meteorite impacts, Um, but I thought this was really cool. I didn't know this was... Um, synthesized before it was found in nature. Yeah, and what really is cool is, like you said, Meteor Crater is small in quotes. When you're standing there, yeah. compared to you, it's quite large. Yes. In terms of craters, it's quite small. Yes. It had enough force to make this. Yeah, that's what's nuts. And so I think about this because so many times we call things, and I know we've probably talked about this, but this became a big deal in my thesis because you don't call every circular thing that has this a meteor crater because a meteor is a very specific thing. It's a rocky body from extraterrestrial rocky body, right? So usually I had to call my stuff bolide craters, which just (laughs) means you don't know what made the hole, right? It could have been a comet or it could have been a rocky meteor. Um, and so I, I wonder, because they have the meteor, well, pieces, obviously, of the meteorite that hit Meteor Crater, the Canyon Diablo meteorite. And it's like, I wonder if that's why, because it's this really, like, it is an iron meteorite. It is super dense. It's like, I wonder yes. if that's how you can make stishovite in such a small impact crater. Potentially. And... I don't remember. It's been a while since I've been there. Um, too many years now. And I, I want to say that the best estimate of the actual impactor was something like the size of a washing machine. Right. And they have a piece there that's like the biggest piece that's been found. And it's like the size of a, I don't know, a German Shepherd or something. Yeah, that's... That's reasonable. <laughs> With his little legs folded up, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so small, but yeah, still an incredible amount of force. But 10 gigapascals of force there. My God, that's crazy. I know. It's well, so force. 10 gigapascals pressure. of pressure, but we don't I want know. to get on that rant. I know. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> so... It, I don't know. I, I just, I did it very much enjoy while I was there sort of doing some mental math and be like, okay, you can see so many kilometers to the horizon and this was traveling so fast. So by the time you saw it, the sound wave would have already hit you. <laughs> I, it was really interesting just thinking at that scale and sitting there and looking over it. 
Yeah. And going back to that fun paper that we talked about where, and it's just this, it's the meteor crater impact that is written about what happened to the animals. Because the meteor crater itself, it it's really young. It's only 50,000 years old. So there were tons of weird Cenozoic animals hanging out there. Um, and they all basically got turned inside out from the shockwave. Yum. Uh-huh. Yeah, liquefied and then... Yeah. <laughs> so this paper, very graphic. <laughs> but again, right. like when we think about it, well, when I think about it, because the other craters that I've worked on are way bigger than one kilometer across, and it's like this tiny little thing did so much damage. Like what, yeah. did, what did... It makes it easy to immediately say, yes, Chicxulub killed the dinosaurs and changed climate. <laughs> right. <laughs> So. And so stishovite also, you can actually extract it from the rock uh, by doing a hydrofluoric acid treatment. And nobody wants to do that. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> HF is terrifying. It is. I, I know some people that are very comfortable working around it that do it every day. No. Uh, <laughs> always cautious, though. Uh, so hydrofluoric acid, if you get it on your skin... Uh, will leach in and dissolve your bones. Yeah, dissolve your bones, much like the impact crater would have had you been standing right there. Uh, so you always wear lots of protective gear, full smocks, face shields, gloves. There's a very special cream where if any in any situation you get it on skin, you immediately start rubbing this cream on it. Uh, it, it is scary stuff, but once you're properly trained, as long as you're careful, I mean, this is not a lab where people are listening to music and dancing around. Uh, yes, exactly. Um, one of my students had to, he didn't have to do the HF part of it himself, but we were isolating sanidine from some sediments. And so he had to go in and very carefully pick out all these very specific grain sizes of sanidine. It was a real pain that he had to wash them with deionized water and all this stuff. And the next part was to do HF because HF reacts with quartz. And so it gets rid of all the stuff that, you know, you might not think or you might have thought was sanidine. And, uh, yeah, he was terrified. And thank God somebody else did it for us. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so that's it. HF will react with quartz. But it won't act, react with stishovite, even though it's a polymorph of quartz. So it's made of the same stuff, but has a different orientation of its silica and oxygen bonds. So it's still SiO2, but it's actually really strange. It kind of elongates, sort of. It looks like rutile, which are these little needly type um, minerals. And those silica oxygen bonds, instead of being one silica bonded to four oxygens like it normally is. It's like one silica bonded to three. And it's unlike any other form of quartz. Right. Yeah. So real weird stuff. Stishovite is for sure. Like like I said, cozite, maybe. Stishovite, yes. You have an impact crater. And there's one more. I hesitate to call it microscopic, but I guess it is. It is. <laughs> Thing that we can look at. <laughs> which is rock magnetism. So that's back to your field. Right, exactly. Um, I think I might even save this for a whole nother show um, because this was my entire master's thesis and then also what one of my students is working on now um, because we want to, we've gone through, I mean, we have three shows worth of diagnostic features of impacts, right? And so the magnetic properties of what happens to these rocks when they get hit 
with 10 gigapascals of pressure. <laughs> it seems like something would happen to the magnetic properties, right? You've got all these little magnets in these rocks. Does it align them? Do they get frozen in time when the impact happened? And there's actually a lot of weird differing evidence on this. <laughs> um, I think the consensus is though, not consensus, overwhelmingly it appears, and I say this because I, I've sampled lots of impact craters that don't appear to have a magnetization. Um, I think that it, these impacts, the shock is so much that it acts to randomize the magnetization within the rocks. And you can almost see that that's the case in the center of impact craters. And as you go out from the center, you have you know less pressure impacting the rocks. Ha! <laughs> that you can actually start to record a magnetization. So it's very strange. Yeah. So I agree. That's probably a topic for another show and maybe for even an entire project. Yes. Like another master's thesis. If anybody wants to come work with me and work on impact craters. Well, <laughs> and we all know that scientific projects all have to have one thing in common. Beer. Fancy acronyms. Oh, nice one. <laughs> Which leads us into everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yay. Man, I knew this one was right up your alley, and I can't wait <laughs> to play with it. <laughs> so acronym. Acronym creation for you and me. That's where the name comes from. Right, with the A. By B.A. Cook. A-C-R-O-N-Y-M. Oh man, I love this. And so <laughs> this is talking about the ridiculous use of acronyms by astronomers, but I don't know, maybe they're worse than most people. It's hard to tell. Yeah, they say that only probably bested by politicians. I've seen some pretty tortured geologic project acronyms though too <laughs> it's very true um i love this i love so the whole purpose of this is he starts off right away with saying each year countless hours of productive research time is spent brainstorming creative acronyms <laughs> so true and a lot of these you know traditionally think of an acronym as the first letter of every word except for the uh, the conjunctions generally, mm -hmm. uh, or coordinating conjunctions if you want to get technical. Uh, so A and N for that kind of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. But the scientific ones often get more tortured than that. We just pull random letters out of the middle of words, skip some words entirely, use five letters out of another word. And so this is, I wonder if, you know, if we started that way or we've just, used so many acronyms now that we've wound up that way well, i think a lot of it is you have to have a short way to refer to your project because most project names are so long if you had to say it every time it would be painful yeah or model names true. or instrument names or that kind of thing right so my friend found a t-shirt that said data is the new bacon and we didn't understand what it meant until i realized that bacon is like a bayesian something statistical model <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so you don't, the B-A being the first two letters of the word Bayesian, like, what's going on, man? So apparently astronomers are really bad at using any letters within the words to make up awesome 
acronyms like doofus. <laughs> I really enjoyed that one. I, f- I figured you would. <laughs> that was dumb or overly forced astronomical acronym site. Just right. A, a website cataloging these ridiculous acronyms. <laughs> uh, with my favorite example from that being Batman for the basic <laughs> transit model calculation in Python. In Python? There's no P in Batman. Enigma was a good one. Evolution mm-hmm. of grains in the Magellanic cloud. <laughs> I love it. Again, cloud, not even in the acronym. <laughs> so they wrote this little Python utility that uses a dictionary uh, or a word corpus mm-hmm. and determines, based on a phrase that you give it, all of the acronyms that could be made from this that are within a certain letter range. I believe it's four to eight by default Mm -hmm. because they're doing a little bit of a naive comparison approach here. Uh, So it scales as order in time-wise. So if you go longer words or have a more extensive dictionary, dictionary is twice as big. It's going to take twice as long to go through. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there are some limits. But I, I installed this utility. It's very easy. Just pip install acronym. <laughs> and I put in don't panic geocast. Oh, man. What do we get? So the first one is dances. Okay. Uh, digest. <laughs> dance. Danes. <laughs> diest. Doest. Dotes. Dane. Dang. Dies. Diet. Digs. Uh, skip down a little bit. Dogs, done, dong, dons, dost, dot, <laughs> and dots. <laughs> Obviously, dang and dogs are at the top of my list. <laughs> uh, yep, that, that was high on my list as well. Uh, and so I'm, I've got it running right now. So oh. let's do OU Paleo <laughs> Magnetics Lab Oratory. Oh no. All right, collecting. <laughs> All right, the results are in. <laughs> What's my next t shirt going to say? <laughs> Operator. Oh, okay. Like Openist. <laughs> oratory. Mm-hmm. Oporto. <laughs> Outcry. I like that one. Ah, yeah, that's what you feel like after being in that room. Uh, <laughs> opera. Mm-hmm. Opera could be oily. That's an appropriate one for Oh, that is an oily or an appropriate one. You're correct. <laughs> <laughs> only, as in only we believe this. <laughs> so true. Uh, or uh, oust. Mm. Those are some of my favorites from that list. That's really good. How many Did things Did you have another it, one you want to try? Or I know. I'm trying to think. How many things does it return back to you? Does it just keep going? Uh, it, there's some command line settings where you can say how many letters and how many results you want. Oh, okay. Um, what I really liked about it is this is set up to where you can use any corpus. So it's like you could really do this in any language, right? That's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I know. I was trying to think of some, um, hmm. Okay. So we'll do something for my dissertation. Okay. So Colorado Clastic Dykes. Paleomagnetism Project. Colorado Plastic Dykes Paleomagnetism Project. And processing. All right. 
Oh, man, this is a long list. <laughs> uh, so Colorado is one. Oh, wow. That's impressive. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, let's see. Closets collapse. <laughs> Coronets. Coronets. <laughs> Crickets. Crockett. Oh <laughs> um, cloaks. Ooh, I like that. That's veiled in mystery, much like PMAG. <laughs> Let's see. It's a long list. Let me. Cosines. I do like that, too. Caesar. <laughs> I like that one. Oh, man. This uh, is amazing. Let's see. Casket. <laughs> Coasts. Uh, let me scroll down. Oh, crater. <gasps> Look at that. <laughs> Crater is one. It all comes full circle. Uh, <laughs> Caddy. You could get a great project logo for Caddy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You were my Caddy carrying around my water. Yeah. <laughs> um, and one of the last ones is Cry. Oh, so true. Man, this is great. We've never had an interactive fun paper. So, yeah, there you go. It's, uh, like I said, just pip install acronym and then acronym, put in quotes the name of your project, and scroll through and get a good laugh. Oh, that's fantastic. What a great, what a great paper. <laughs> yeah. So we encourage you to go ahead and install this on your system, run some different phrases, and send us your favorite acronyms. We might have to share some. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Shannon, how can they send those acronyms into us? Uh, email us show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, you can always find us on Twitter. We're together at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. Um, put that in the Slack channel. Seems like a lot of people there would know how to install this pretty fast. Uh, we're on the software underground, the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping us going. If you are interested in supporting us, patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our